Welcome to the podcast on Natural Dallas, or the pond for short. Here's where we take the measure of the natural world that is all around us, probing its secrets, and beholding its mysterious wonders. The flora, the fauna, the earth below our feet, and the sky above our heads. All is for a game as we wade ever more deeply into the waters of discovery. This podcast is brought to you by the staff of the Dallas Public Library, where we strive to connect the curious with the passionate and foster a culture of lifelong learning. The views shared on this podcast are those of its participants and not those of the library or the city of Dallas. Let's get started. Welcome to the pond. I'm Greg. For today's episode, we're joined by North Texas master naturalist Jesse Crowley to talk about frogs and their relatives. Jesse graduated from the University of Illinois with a bachelor's of science degree in animal science. Upon graduation, she worked as a herpetologist at the Dallas Zoo, where she handled more than 300 different species of reptiles and amphibians. Jesse was also the lead naturalist educator for the Perot Museum of Nature and Science, where she managed the live collection and developed the life science curriculum, as well as coordinating the junior master naturalist program. She currently teaches middle school science at Hockaday School. Welcome, Jesse. It's good to have you. Thanks for having me. So how did you come to be interested in frogs, Jesse? When I was a youngin', my parents took us camping a lot, um, and that was kind of like our vacation for the summer. I remember some of the state parks that we went to being fascinated by the number of frogs that were attracted to the lights outside the bathroom. Um, and I was curious as to why they were there. And I kind of put two and two together and realized that the bugs were also attracted to the lights. So that's why the frogs were there. But at the same time, I was also worried about them getting run over in the parking lot. So I would be spending hours picking these frogs and putting them in what I thought was a safe place. Being young, I was kind of naive and probably now I think about it, I was like, I was probably making actually frog's life a lot harder um, when it was trying to get catches dinner. But at the time, it was just a fascination, a childhood fascination that kind of grew into an adult fascination. I can relate. Well, um, frogs are part of the classification of uh, animals known as amphibians. So what exactly is an amphibian? So amphibian comes from the Greek word meaning double life. And so amphibians kind of leave a, lead a double life, many of them. Part of their life cycle is in water, and part of the life cycle is on land. And we can break amphibia down into three orders. So we have our most common and most abundant order, the frogs, um, which constitute close to 90% of the amphibians on our planet. And then we have the salamanders. So we have close to probably about maybe 9% are salamanders. And then we have one called the Sicilians. And a lot of people look at me like, what are you talking about? Sicilians, there's only about 213 described species, and they don't, they occur mostly around the equator. And these are worm, kind of snake-like looking amphibians that are mostly fossorial, that burrow underground, or are aquatic. What they all have in common, they're all tetrapods. They're all what we call ectothermic or cold-blooded, so they rely on their environment to heat up or cool down. And they have a special type of skin. It's thin, and it's full of, it's got lots of glands on it to keep it moist. They do tend to dry out, and they also have glands that have toxins in them for protection, and also they have some antimicrobial components to them. And they also are semi-permeable, the skin is, that is. And that means they, it's a fancy way of saying that they breathe and drink through their skin. Those are some common characteristics we lump into these orders of amphibia. Are there anatomical differences between frogs and toads? I like to put it this way when I get that question. Not all frogs are toads, but all toads are frogs. So toads are just a family of frogs. And usually when you say toad, you think of, especially here in the state, true toads. So they're going to fall into the family Bufonidae. And typically what they have, they have bumpy skin. So some people call it warts. And we can't get warts from toads. So no matter... Mm -hmm. 
what you've heard. That's that's a myth. Warts are actually a human virus that you can get, but um, you cannot get warts from toads. A big characteristic that all the true toads share is they have um, what's called a parotoid gland or a parotoid gland. And that's just a, a large gland that has uh, emits toxins when they feel threatened. And that, that gland lies just behind the eyes, and it's really noticeable. You can really tell if it's a toad when it has this large uh, parotoid gland. So that's the big distinguishing feature is that parotoid gland. But also toads tend to lay, especially true toads, they lay their eggs in strings as opposed to frogs typically lay their eggs in masses. So that's another kind of difference that you can uh, delineate between the two in that way as well. Any other distinctions between the frogs, including frogs and toads, and other amphibians? What separates them from the other amphibians? Frogs typically have long, their hind legs are typically longer and stronger for jumping. So that's how we know frogs hop, right? So the other, uh, the Sicilians and the uh, salamanders are not going to be jumping. So that's one of the, the main differences that separates frogs from salamanders and, and Sicilians, is their jumping legs. Are you familiar with the fact that frogs and toads metamorphose from tadpoles? Could you elaborate a little bit on the reproductive? reproductive cycle and the reproductive behavior of frogs? You know, when we're in elementary school and we learn about life cycles, we always learn about the life cycle of a frog, right? And commonly we learn about that frogs lay their eggs in ponds and the eggs hatch into tadpoles, which then they eat um, usually vegetation. And some of them are carnivorous too. And so they'll eat detritus and and, uh, animals that have died. Um, And then they morph. They grow legs, they grow limbs, they absorb their tail, and then they leave the water. So that's the classic life cycle of frogs, and it's a process we call metamorphosis. But actually, their reproductive strategies in amphibians are actually more variable than most people think. We actually have a species of frog that's been introduced to the area called the Rio Grande chirping frog. And these frogs lay clutches of legs between 3 and 15 eggs, and they actually bury them in moist vegetation. The frogs develop inside the egg. There's no tadpole stage. So it's, some, it's a strategy we call direct development. So they just pop out as miniature versions of their frogs. So they look just like mom and dad. And there's some other crazy strategies like the Darwin frog. The male of this species will actually swallow the tadpoles after they hatch. And um, they'll develop in the vocal patch of the male. And then they pop out as morphed frogs. And then we oh. have some, some Sicilians. Sicilians lay eggs, but they also give live birth. And the females in our burrow she'll lay a, or give live birth to a clutch of young babies and the babies will hang out with mom and they'll actually, the mom will grow a layer of skin that the babies then scrape off and eat mm-hmm. for a time. So there's a lot of different cool strategies out there other than the classic um, egg to tadpole frog sort of life cycle. It opens up a lot of opportunities for amphibians to expand where they can live, right? So they don't have to rely on always having a large body of water in order to reproduce or a temporary pool in order to reproduce, they can reproduce on land without uh, the need for that. So it's really interesting. What about reproductive behaviors? So like when we hear frogs calling, is that associated with territoriality or mating or? So when you say the frogs start singing, they're interested in breeding. Males will do the calling. So if you're hearing a a frog call, it's going to be a male species most of the time. And especially in this area. And so the males will find a really good pool they think is fit for reproducing in. Um, and the females will then come and choose based on the male's call. In the animal world, usually it's ladies' choice, right? Um, the males will, they're also 
fighting over for the females. Uh, the male wants to be heard. So a lot of times you'll hear males, they don't want their calls to overlap. So sometimes they'll make sure that they are, they're heard. And so the females can find them. And you'll find that females will mate with several males in, the, in a season and maybe even in a night. Typically around here, they find a good spot and especially as some of the most common toads like the Gulf Coast toad and the Woodhouse toad and um, the green tree frog, um, they lay their eggs in the water. And so that's where they will, will develop and then the tadpoles will develop from there. So does the male have to fertilize the eggs or how does that? Yes, correct. So exactly. most of the species that you find around here, we're going to have external fertilization. So the males engage into a process called amplexus. So they'll actually mount on top of the female and hold her in so she can't get away, and then wait for her to release her eggs, and as they come out, they'll fertilize them. And what other ways are frogs adapted to aquatic habitats besides their reproductive cycle? So many of the frogs, like I'm thinking of especially some of the true frogs that we call, like the bullfrogs and the leopard frogs, they have uh, webbed feet, which is excellent for swimming. Like they're almost nearly impossible to catch. And I like to go catch frogs. If they get in the water, they're gone. It's like they disappear um, because they're able to swim so quickly using their webbed feet. Some other strategies, they're very camouflaged too, and especially in these aquatic environments. So you, you see something called um, counter shading. So a lot of times amphibians are kind of lightly colored on the, on the ventral side, their bellies. And then they're green or dark on the top side, the dorsal side of the frog. And so when a predator is looking down, they're going to be camouflaged with the habitat they're in, they're the water source, the pond. And if their predator is looking from above and it's sunny out, the lighter shading on the belly is actually going to camouflage them against the sun. So a lot of species you'll see have you know, lighter skin on the bellies to blend in with the pond when they're being hunted from below. That sounds pretty effective. Yeah, I think so. Why are frogs and frog populations of interest to scientists, and how do they scientists study these frog populations? Frogs are awesome. That's one reason why scientists like to study them, right? Right. Um, but another reason is they, um, because I kind of I mentioned it earlier, they're semi-permeable skin. Let me expand on that a little bit. They take in oxygen and release carbon dioxide through their skin. Um, and they also drink through their skin. So you'd never see a frog drinking water. So they absorb everything from their skin. And so when there's changes in the environment, it's likely that frogs are going to start seeing the effects of that. And when I say changes, I'm thinking, you know, negative changes to their environment, whether it's pollution or habitat change, um, things like that, they're going to be affected. So monitoring how these amphibians are responding to these changes uh, it's really beneficial to how the whole ecosystem might be affected because frogs play a really important role as predators and prey in the food chain. So it's important to keep track of, of that, especially in habitats that are being manipulated or changed. Also, um, frogs, like I mentioned, their skin, they have a lot of glands in their skin. And some of these glands have uh, antimicrobial capabilities. So that might be interesting. I know scientists are looking at how these antimicrobial processes might help the frog, but also maybe even could prove had to have human applications and benefits. Uh, I know scientists are looking that for that. But as far as like surveying frogs, I spent some time in Australia uh, helping with some surveys. Uh, they're surveying for a disease. And a lot of times it's just active searching. So you're going out at night because that's when they're most active um, and you're catching them in nets, but also you're listening for the frog calls. So you try to go around the same times that they're breeding. So in the spring and summer times of the summer months when they're going to be most active um, and you just listen for their calls. So they give themselves away, right? That's a great way for looking for and catching frogs. Some scientists also do what are called pitfall traps. And so they'll actually dig little holes in the ground 
where the frogs will just hop in. So they check those traps night, uh, every night. Um, and so that's another another method that they use to monitor and survey species. You mentioned uh, amphibian populations and po pollution as being a uh, possible threat. Are there any other sure. threats that amphibian populations face? Unfortunately, yes. Probably the biggest threat against amphibians are faced with currently is definitely habitat destruction. And there's a lot of examples of this. They need a water source. A lot of amphibians do. If we're building a road in between them and their water source, that's going to be a hazard for them to try to, to get to their, their habitat. And of course, we're clearing forests and vital ecosystems that these animals live in, and we're taking that away from them, right? That's a huge issue facing amphibians. And that's the case for you know a lot of animals. Uh, but one unique threat facing a lot of amphibians worldwide, mostly in the um, where you see a more biodiversity, so in the tropics, is a disease called chytridiomycosis. And that's caused by a chytrid fungus that has the same affinity for these sort of moist and humid environments as the frogs do. And they have a mobile stage. And what happens is they actually eat away at some of the keratin in the skin. So the frogs can't breathe and drink through their skin anymore. And it causes all sorts of health issues. And we're seeing populations of frogs dying out in Central South America because of this disease, Australia. So it's a really big issue because it's not something we can see. They're microscopic fungus that live in these areas. It's not something that you can really remove. So a lot of zoos and museums are going into these areas and collecting frogs they can and treating them for this fungus. There's some topical medicines that you can use to actually treat the fungus and keeping them in captivity and breeding them in captivity and maintaining these captive populations in the hopes that maybe reintroduction is possible in the future. And maybe these frogs become immune to it at some point, or there's a way to, to look for that as a possibility. Since frog and toad species can be identified by their vocalizations, we've arranged to play some recorded calls for some of the species that can be found here in the Dallas area. And what I'd like to do is just to play a call and then have see if you can identify uh, the frog and maybe tell us a little bit about the species that's making the call. Does that sound okay? Sounds awesome. All right, let's get started. like the Blanchard cricket frog. Um, that's a species of cricket frog that you find in this area. Um, and so that species is actually super common here in a lot of the urban areas. So if you have any kind of ponds, parks with ponds in it, you're going to have cricket frogs. Um, they like permanent ponds, permanent lakes, uh, but you'll even hear them calling along creeks and even probably drainage ditches. They'll pretty much show up anywhere. And so they're really small, but they pack their calls super loud. They actually sound more like, if you can think of it as two marbles being knocked together or two uh, river rocks being knocked together. That's how I like to remember that call. Uh, so that's one of my favorite frog calls. Uh, that is the eastern narrowmouth toad. That kind of sounds like a sheep. And so a lot of people mistake it for uh, the call of a, a sheep on a farm, right? And these are really small frogs as well. And these guys like to call from the water. So they're actually really hard to spot when they're calling because they, they're so camouflaged in the water. But they are super loud when you get close to them. You can't believe that a frog that size I mean, I'm talking like an inch and a half. Uh, you're surprised that a, a frog that small can actually produce a sound that loud. Okay, so that sounds like the Woodhouse's toad. That is my absolute favorite call, and I love playing that for uh, my students. 
because they always crack up. It sounds like someone screaming. <laughs> and so the Woodhouse Code is um, a super fun call to find. Uh, I might mention how frogs actually produce their call, uh, which is actually they're just exchanging air between their lungs and their vocal sac. And it's that vocal sac that actually makes the sound come out the way it does. So um, it also, so they're just exchanging air. They close their nostrils and they just move air between their vocal sac and their lungs. And it resonates in that vocal sac. Now, this next one is one It's one of my favorites because I've heard it on several times when I've been on fishing trips out on a body of water at night. So. Nice. Oh, so that's one of our tree frogs that we have here in this area. The green tree frog It's a beautiful frog. You can't mistake it for any other frog that we have here. I love their call, too. And they usually call from permanent wetlands usually wetlands that have tall vegetation because that's where they like to hang out and call from. So they usually find them around permanent lakes and permanent ponds. So that's probably why you see them when you're fishing or hear them. <laughs> and the uh, green tree frogs, they actually have a couple of other relatives, close relatives, don't they? The kind of different sounding calls, but uh, very close family members. Yeah, so other uh, tree frogs that we have around here are the gray tree frogs. And so we have the gray tree frogs and the Cope's gray tree frog. And when you look at them, you cannot distinguish between the two. They look so similar. So you really have to use the call in order to distinguish between them because they sound very, very different. I would say the gray tree frog's a little bit more musical. And then the Cope's gray tree frog kind of sounds more like an insect. And so um, being able to tell your frogs apart is going to be really vital and for some species because they're really hard to tell apart, especially if the ranges overlap. Knowing your frog calls is an excellent way to be able to ID the frogs that you have around you, especially sometimes they stay hidden, they jump away, they swim away, like I was saying. Sometimes they're hard to catch. So you know, learning the frog calls of our area is, is a great way to get to know what you got around your house okay. or Right. Well, that's a great segue into talking about uh, if somebody in the Dallas area wanted to possibly hear some frogs calling, uh, either some of the ones that we've been playing uh -huh. or maybe some other ones in the area. I think they're maybe the southern leopard frog and a mm -hmm. few that are around. Uh, sure. Where would you recommend that they go? And is there a particular time of year that's better? Springtime is an excellent time of year when we start to get heavy rain. That's really when the frogs like to come out and of course when uh, the weather starts to warm up. So a lot of the more common ones are going to start calling in April, May, like cricket frogs, leopard frogs, bullfrogs, um, and our tree frogs. Some of the early uh, risers, uh, we even see some of the coarse frogs. If, you're, if you hear some of those around your area, they start calling as early as February. Wow. So, yeah. So I've heard them calling at Trinity River Audubon Center. They have a great wetland, so sometimes they do night programs. That's a great place to go out and, and explore a lot of different species that you'll find out there. I like to go to, like, River Legacy Park. It's a great spot. Village Creek's drying beds, um, which is actually a popular spot for birding, but it's a great frogging spot. So if you go out there at night, oh, my gosh, so many leopard frogs. I've heard bullfrogs out there, tree frogs, cricket frogs. But if you have a nearby park that has a pond, there's going to be frogs there. So I recommend going out there right at sunset, um, but they call well into the night. So if, if you're uh, comfortable being outside at your local park in the evening time, that's the best time to actually go and, and listen for frogs. Cricket frogs start calling, can call during the day too. So that's a good one to, to start with if, if that's what 
you're interested in learning more about cricket frogs call during the day, uh, right as the sun is setting and through the night. All right. Well, I'm, I'm ready for next spring already, so. I know. Me too. <laughs> Do you have any tips for those of us who want to make our own yards inviting the frogs and toads? Providing lots of spots to hide. Um, if you have, you know, just grass cut short, you're not going to get a lot of frogs. If you have uh, the ability to make artificial ponds in your yard, my neighbor has an artificial pond, and every year a male Gulf Coast toad comes out and calls and calls and calls <laughs> all spring. Uh, it's so great. And I live in the city. I live right near Lovefield Airport. So I'm not near any kind of pond or lake. So there, as long as you have an area that you keep moist, so you might put like flat rocks around. So you have like a, maybe a, a rock scape somewhere uh, and lots of native plants areas where they can hide and where where they can hide underneath, that's going to be a great way to, to attract frogs to your area. But definitely having some kind of artificial pond. And you might find them near like where your hose is because it stays wet in that area sometimes. So you might put flat rocks or flat boards in that area too where frogs could hide under during the day. Yeah, that's my experience in my backyard. I do have a little pond, but then right by where the garden hose comes out of the wall and it's kind of a mulchy area. Yeah. Uh, that a lot of frogs end up in that one area. So and also don't use pe don't use pesticides or herbicides or anything like that because they can absorb that stuff through their skin. Um, and native plants, they're probably a good a good bet too. Okay, well, great. If people want to learn more about frogs, do you have any recommended resources? If you want to learn about some of the frogs that are more most common in your area, I would suggest iNaturalist. Getting that app a free app that you can download. And really it's a way for, I don't know, you did a segment on it uh, earlier this year or last year. Right. But it's a, it's a great app that you can see what other people are finding in your area. So you can take a picture of a frog, upload it to the app. And, and if you don't know what it is, there are other naturalists in the area that are looking at these pictures and will tell you what it is. So that's a great way to learn about the frogs in your area. A great, great website is amphibiaweb.org, amphibiaweb.org. And you can learn about frogs all over the world and that has great natural history information also uh, information about conservation and some of the threats that these species are facing and it updates the count of described species and so i think the counts up to like 8200 or so species of described amphibians and it even breaks it down into how many frogs there are described how many salamanders and how many sicilians so if you want to learn more about any of those families or any of those order any of amphibians in those orders i would definitely check out amphibiaweb.org thank you well are there sure. final thoughts that you'd like to share about why frogs are cool or um any other plugs <laughs> well i'm kind of biased but um anytime i'm out hiking i'm always out looking for spots where i can find frogs so i absolutely encourage everybody to learn frog calls because that's a great way to get to know the frogs in your area and to get outside, especially uh, during the current situation we're in, being outside is the safest way to um, engage with nature and, and, and learn more about some of the, the organisms that are around us. I encourage everybody to do that. Thank you so much, Jesse, for being here sure. with us. And um, thank you to our Pond listeners. You've been listening to The Pond Podcast, brought to you by the staff of the Dallas Public Library, where we inspire curiosity, connect people, and advance lives. See you next time, and until then, keep your eyes open for the natural world all around us.